When an emergency strikes, Preppy has you covered. Made in California, canvas and leather emergency kits packed with survival food, water, and first aid with optional emergency satellite communication. Go to Preppy.co. That's P-R-E-P-P-I dot C-O slash Filmweek. From the Moan Broadcast Center, it's Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle. This week, our critics will tell us about the new movie from Mexico, The Chambermaid. Also, hear about Greg Kinnear's film that he directs and stars in with Emily Mortimer, Phil, and the documentary from Nick Broomfield, Marianne and Leonard, Words of Love, about the late musician Leonard Cohen and his Norwegian muse. It's all coming up on Film Week. Preppy wants everyone to be prepared for any situation. By bringing design to the forefront of their emergency kits, they are making earthquake prep less daunting and maybe even a little fun. Made in California, Preppy's attractive canvas and leather bags are designed to be displayed right in your living room or office. If an emergency strikes, your most essential supplies are at arm's length, not stashed somewhere deep in your closet. Though the Preppy line is quite handsome on the outside, the contents they include are incredibly comprehensive, helping you face real emergency situations with confidence. Go to Preppy.co, that's P-R-E-P-P-I dot C-O slash Filmweek for more information. Wonderful to have you with us on Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle. My thanks to John Horn and Stephen Cuevas, who both hosted in my absence over the past couple of weeks while I was traveling on vacation. Wonderful to be back with you. On Film Week this week, our critics Tim Cockshell of Alt Film Guide and Cinegods.com, Claudia Puig, not only film critic but president of the L.A. Film Critic Association. And we begin with the Mexican film The Chambermaid from director and co-writer Lila Aviles. Uh, her film is set in Mexico City. Gabriela Cartol is the star with Teresa Sanchez. Claudia, what did you think of The Chambermaid? I liked it a lot. I thought it was, uh, it's my favorite film of the week, actually. Um, this is a very quiet and understated observational drama. It's it's not just quiet, but it's patient. And it just kind of, it, it's beautiful to look at since a lot of it is filmed sort of steadily on a tripod. Mm. Um, it, it's also very compassionate. It takes its time to sort of reveal who this character is. And, you know, they're... People who are maids in hotels are people who are often unseen and ignored and, you know, they're not treated well. And so it gives us a view of somebody who we normally don't see. And uh, Aviles uh, met and researched chambermaids working at a very luxurious hotel in Mexico City to, you know, for her research. And you can tell there's these little details that just feel so real. Um, and it's just I love the fact that and they also use a real actress. Um, as opposed to, for instance, it does feel a little bit like a companion piece to Roma. Um, I was going to say, because it's mm. a domestic worker. Yes, yes, right. Um, But the difference here is that this, uh, well, there's a lot of differences, but one difference is that Gabriela Cartol is uh, an actress, unlike Elitza Aparicio, who had not been an actress before. And also there's no big epic feel, and and we don't see her through the lens of privileged people we see her through her we see her and the privileged people are in the background who she works for and so mm. i think that's an interesting uh it's also not you know guaron's memory or it's not anybody's memory it's a it's an invented story but there's just so much to this there's so many layers to it mm. and 
I love her relationship with the other uh, workers at the hotel. I just thought it was great. And, and indeed, we see the world as she is seeing it. We see these guests as she sees them. It's not them gazing upon her. It's her gazing upon them. Even that window washer guy. She's, yes. she's watching, watching. This director, she's fantastic. She takes her camera and she puts it on a tripod and she leaves it alone. And she lets these actors wander into this frame and play out this, these scenes. And it's just absolutely exquisite. Much of the film. Every now and again, we're following her. We're just over her shoulder. Right. Uh, and, and, and again, we're, with, we're in her point of view. And I ask myself as I'm watching this film, am I like one of these guests? Am I, I think one that's, of those that, I think everybody thinks and that. And I think to yeah. myself, oh, I, I'm not, oh, am I that guy? Am I that guy? Have I done that? I think I've done that. And it makes you think to yourself, I have to be a better person. Yes, absolutely. It does make you, you know, take stock in how you treat people that oftentimes are not seen mm. or, or, you know, devalued. And she gives, gives such a nuanced and restrained performance. And she has this curiosity about how these people live with also with a sense of like distance and, and deference. But we do get inside her life a wee bit. She's taking yes. this class. Uh, and, and so we can see that she wants to make herself a better person. She's trying to get her GED. Mm-hmm. That's right. And she has a little son. And, so, and, we, and she's striving to get to work on a new floor, which will be kind of an upwardly mobile thing. And then she, this one just heartbreaking thing is that somebody left behind, one of the wealthy uh, patrons left behind a red dress. And she goes every day to the lost and or frequently to the lost and found to see, you know, if nobody claims it, then they will give it to the most worthy of the, the staff. Yeah, yeah, and so she goes, yeah, and they always say, well, you're, you behaved really well, so you're going to get this dress. And, you know, it, it, the evolution of how she comes to deal with that is really interesting. Yeah. yeah, I want to step back just for a moment from the chambermaid to talk about Mexican cinema generally, because you know there was a period where a lot of films from Mexico were making their way up here. Back with Amores Perros and when Iñárritu too was first yeah. starting in Guadalajara. Yeah, and even yeah. before that, for Spanish-speaking Angelinos, there's a huge, uh, you know, the the movie palaces on Broadway. Oh, way largely, back, absolutely. Largely yes. showed Spanish-language films with big Mexican stars. And, yes, a, fr- a family friend of ours owned the Million Dollar Theater. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah it was a great, great yeah. venue. So... What's happened? I mean, I know this is a big question, but I'm assuming one of the reasons this is, you know, is getting is getting some attention is that maybe Roma helped a little bit, you know, open. Well, this played that, at Toronto. But, I think it, it might have. Yes, I'm, I'm sure it's helped now, but, you know, it was already getting attention. Um it's a really good question. I mean, that's happened with other cinema, like Argentine cinema was the mm. same way for a while. I think there's an ebb and flow, you know, with foreign cinema. Um, my frustration sometimes is that we don't see any American-born Latinos directing as much as we see a lot of Mexican directors. And, you know, we not a lot. We see the big three, the three amigos. Yeah. And now, uh, you know, there's a few more. Um that are, are are making their way. But I think it's kind of a resurgence of Mexican cinema. I mean, when you go back to like the 40s and all yeah. the actors, I mean, oh, it, was, it was it was a, a big, big business. Yes, it was. Yeah. Yes, yeah, it was. Dracula, they made it in Spanish at the exact same time that they were making it uh, in English. If you go all the way back to the 30s, it is interesting, though, those big directors. Uh, once they strike it big, they come here and they start making films in English. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So that's why European I love Roma so much. Yeah, yeah, Europeans do it, too. I mean, everybody does yeah. it, sadly. Um, they get co-opted or they want to make the American bigger American films, but I love that. Like, well, they want to get paid. That's what they want to get. They want to get paid. The money is here. Sure, uh, and, uh, and and also the the audiences. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The Chambermaid, the film from Mexico, we're talking about, directed by and co-written by Lila 
Aviles, uh, Juan Carlos Marquez, the co-screenwriter. The film's unrated. You can see it at Lemley's Royal in West L.A. and Lemley's Playhouse in Pasadena. Phil, a comedic drama directed by Greg Kinnear in his feature directorial debut. Kinnear also stars with Emily Mortimer. Stephen Mazur is the screenwriter. Tim? Yeah, so anyway, uh, yeah, Kinnear's uh, directorial debut, he's a charming fellow he is. Uh, he's very charming in this movie. This movie doesn't work at all. Um, 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 so charmingly it, so, though. It's charmingly <laughs> so. Uh, there's, so here, he's this guy. He's divorced. Uh, he's a little depressed, perhaps a midlife crisis. He's a dentist. He runs into this man whose life seems to be absolutely perfect. Played by Bradley Whitford. Played by Bradley Whitford. He even has perfect teeth. I don't know why he was going to the dentist. Just, you, just <laughs> to you keep them that? perfect. You know, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, then, and then something happens that he, that he witnesses. Can we, can, we, can we say that part of the film? Or, because I, I think I it's fairly think obvious. I the trailer may have given it, it, gives it away. It away. Yeah. And Bradley commits suicide. He witnesses this. And it sends him into this sort of spiral. And he wants to know if this guy is, is, with his perfect life does this, then what of me? And he sort of wheedles himself into this guy's life, Emily Mortimer, his wife. And he, in order to do it, he has to pretend that he's Greek. There's a reason for this, except that it's a silly reason. <laughs> and, 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 and maybe if it were 1988, the, the writer of this film, a guy named Stephen Mazur, who wrote Heartbreakers and Liar Liar. And, and, and it really has a sort of like 1988, 1999 sensibility to it. But it doesn't make any sense as a contemporary film with suicide at the center of what's going on here. It just it wasn't it wasn't funny. No, I, I kind of appreciate that it was trying to take a different look at suicide and that it was trying to have sort of a darkly comic look because, I mean, I, that's been done and, and, and not enough, but not that it maybe should be done a lot. But still, I mean, I thought that was something slightly different. And it, and it's sort of the comedy part is definitely in Kinnear's wheelhouse. He's so affable, as you point out. He just exudes a nice guy. And so in this case, he's a little bit of a depressed but, you know, kind of reserved nice guy. Um, and his acting is fine. I think his directing actually shows his promise. Mm-hmm. I think he could go on to you know do that. Unfortunately, it's all in the script, as you mentioned. Um, Stephen Mazur's script just doesn't work. There's some really good performances or good actors, like, yeah. more than performances. Emily Mortimer, Robert Forster, Bradley Whitford. We mentioned Taylor J. Duplass, Taylor Schilling. Schilling. It's a good cast. It's a good cast, and there are times it works, but it does. It feels forced and sitcommy. Um, and you know, I, I think it was the idea, the initial idea of like trying. Trying to understand why somebody who seems to have it all commits suicide is something that, you know, we are all interested in. But it just goes in this really ridiculous direction. Well, and the other thing is, if you're if you're going to have at the center is something as tragic as suicide, not that that's off limits for humor, because sure. tragedy can can create some quite poignant humor. Yes, um, but it's hard to do to yes. tonally hit to take something as devastating as suicide and figure out how to make that darkly comedic. Absolutely. And to have that, to take that on for your directorial debut is a really ambitious That's thing to take on. Lift. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we're talking about Phil, Greg Kinnear's directorial debut. He stars with Emily Mortimer, Stephen Mazur, the screenwriter. It's rated R at the Arena Cine Lounge Sunset in Hollywood. Nick Broomfield's new documentary, Marianne and Leonard, Words of Love, looks at the relationship uh, between Leonard Cohen, the late musician, and his Norwegian muse, Marianne uh, Island or Ilan, I'm not sure how that's pronounced, Broomfield. Field always does somewhat, for lack of a better term, eccentric documentaries. Um, 
I find some of his work absolutely fascinating. Other times it can be a little off-putting. So I'm curious, Claudia, about Marianne and Leonard, what you thought. I agree with you. I really liked um, the, the Kurt and Courtney documentary. I've liked some other things he's done. This There's is... the, the Heidi Fleiss one that he did, <laughs> yes, of course, a yeah. years ago. Yeah, this is not in the for me in the canon of of uh, on the good side. Um, you know, he he's a personal filmmaker. He injects himself into films, uh, into his documentaries, and he does it here in a way that I found really distasteful. Um, he Marianne is, is Leonard's muse. They met when they're very young. They live in this beautiful Greek island um, that's very idyllic. He had had some – he basically comes out and says, you know, I slept with her too. And it just felt like, why? Nick Broomfield? Yes, yeah. yes. And so he – are you trying to equate yourself with Leonard Cohen? I don't know what the point of all this is. Um, and just the whole notion of her – you know, the title is Marianne and Leonard. We we find out – we don't find out that much about Leonard Cohen because a lot of stuff has been done on Leonard Cohen. So you don't learn anything particularly new. There's some good footage. But you find out next to nothing about Marianne. And she's supposed to be his muse, which is always kind of a problematic notion anyway. He wrote a song for her. He wrote a, one song for yeah. her. It was like, goodbye, Marianne. Yeah. Or, you know, so long, Marianne. Not a very good song. Not a good song. It wasn't Suzanne. or you know, But still, it, he writes a song and then we have – she's a cipher. And then the one thing we do find out is that, you know, okay, yeah, he does a lot of drugs. He, he womanizes like crazy. And – the the real victims in all of this. I mean, she is you know besotted with him. She's not there for her son. He doesn't care about kids. So this poor son that she has, she was a single mom, just falls by the wayside and ends up in a mental institution. He's completely damaged by you know living with these uh, yeah drug addled or whatever people. <laughs> the sodomites yeah. on this island in, just, in Greece, and 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 much of it takes place there. A good chunk of this begins in the early sixties uh, when she was his muse. She had been married before, already had a son. Lovely, yeah. lovely. Uh, what Norwegians? You know, Norwegian, yeah. Woman. Beautiful little boy. Uh, uh, yeah. This beautiful little boy, and he comes into their life. He's sort of a father figure for the boy, but he's wandering in and out of this woman's life. Uh, he'll go off and write a book, come to the United States, do this and stuff, and, 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 and wandering in and out of this child's life. We, and we, she wanders in and out of his it, life, too. Yeah, you know, and, and, and yes, life. everybody's yeah. taking lovers and all yeah. of this kind of stuff that, that's going on inside. It's all just a mess and a nightmare. Uh, in this beautiful, idyllic place. In this idyllic place. Broomfield does not seem to know this as he's looking. He cannot seem to see all of the narcissism. Yeah. Yes. This does work among among these people. And to the extent, I mean, Marianne, this movie, no, they should have just called it, at a minimum, call it Leonard and yeah. Marianne because yeah. it's mostly about him. Yeah. Uh, but mostly it's just about him. It's about him. Yeah. And yeah, so, and, you know, understandably, he's the famous one, but then don't make it, don't call it Marianne and Leonard. And don't, not only was this child kind of a, a victim, but all the children who lived on yeah. the island. Yeah. I mean, it just broke my heart. And it was such an afterthought, the way it was sort of just dismissed. It's like, oh, yeah, this kid ended up Poor completely Axel. addicted and in a mental hospital. Yeah. yeah. I, I just felt like it was it all felt very sort of superficial and then you could tell that he was just caught up in they wrote a couple of lovely star. letters to each other yeah. uh, and uh, ultimately i think uh, he passed away about three or four months after her the very recent yeah. very shortly afterwards yeah, yeah. um yeah I, it doesn't make it doesn't give you any kind of illumination into leonard cohen's mind at all and yeah. certainly none into marianne's look when it comes to leonard cohen i like the i like the one song hallelujah yeah that's it that's where i'm at yeah <laughs> marianne and leonard words of love documentary from nick broomfield it's rated r at the landmark in west la and the arclight hollywood escape plan the extractors john hertzfeld is the director mike chapman screenwriter sylvester stallone dave batista and curtis 50 cent jackson 
Cent star. Tim, you give us uh, the one-minute version. Yeah, of- yeah, 50 Cent check. John Hertzville wrote Two Days in the Valley, by the way, wrote and directed Two Days in the Valley. Yeah, That's who he yeah. is. This movie, this movie's terrible. Yeah, there it is, right? Third one of these movies. And this <laughs> Tell is, us what you really this think. Is, this is why it's there. First one of these movies, Sylvester Stallone uh, and Arnold Schwarzenegger. That movie cost $50 million, made $25 million domestic, but made $130 million worldwide. Thus, there's another one of these movies, and thus there's a third. This, these people have figured out a little industry, and that's the reason why these movies exist. It's not that they're wonderfully cinematic. This one is for the Hong Kong market. Market. This is not about Sylvester Stallone or even 50 Cent at all. This is about the Hong Kong market. That's what's going on in this movie. And I think that we'll probably see three or four more of these before they go away. All right, Escape Plan, The Extractors, the film from John Hertzfeld and screenwriter Mike Chapman starring Sylvester Stallone, Dave Bautista, Curtis 50 Cent Jackson, rated R, and it's available on demand. Back with more in a minute. Next up on Film Week with Claudia Puig and Tim Cockshell as our critics, we revisit a couple of films that were reviewed on last week's program. They opened in wide release earlier this week, but we want to come back, Keishu, at uh, uh, occasion to want to see them this weekend. Spider-Man Far From Home, directed by John Watts, written by Chris McKenna and Eric Summers, Tom Holland, Samuel L. Jackson, uh, and Zendaya star in the film with Jake Gyllenhaal. Tim, what do you think of this latest Spider-Man? It's it's, uh, an, an affable film. It's a good film. It's a pivot film, is what it is. This is a film that allows them to pivot that franchise away from all of the events of Endgame. It's post-Endgame. Uh, all of that stuff happened, and now we can go off in a different direct- direction. It's lighter, has a good deal more in common with uh, Guardians of the Galaxy or even uh, the one of the Deadpool films, like, just in terms of tone. But we still have these characters that we know uh, that are pushing toward a much... Uh, the entire universe is not at stake in, in this film. Mostly it's just Peter Parker's vacation <laughs> that's, that's at stake in this film. He wants to go to Europe and hang out with his friends. Nick Fury wants him, uh, you know, to take on the mantle of, of Spider-Man, so he has to figure out a way to do both. Love me some Zendaya. She is absolutely extraordinary, um, just as a, a young actress. Best thing in that P.T. Barnum movie. She's on a series called Euphoria now. I've been interviewing her since she was a little kid. I used to interview her when she was a Disney kid. Wow. Uh, so she's fantastic. But you know what she's not? Mary Jane. She's not. Mary Jane is a lovely little redhead, always has been and always should be. I'm sorry. I'm a stickler about that. <laughs> uh, and, uh, so, so that's a thing for me. Um, my favorite Spider-Man, Tobey Maguire's original. My favorite Spider-Man 1960s, the one you and I grew up watching. <laughs> yeah, right. Larry. Spider-Man, Spider-Man. <laughs> that's my, yeah, that's right. my Spider-Man. I want to hear Larry sing. <laughs> yeah, right. But if it's got to be a human Spider-Man, I thoroughly enjoyed the original Tobey Maguire Spider-Man uh, with Kirsten Dunst. And, and, and that's my Spider-Man. Yeah. And I've never really needed another one. That's Sam Raimi, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sam yeah. 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 So the new one, Spider-Man Far From Home. John Watts, the director, rated PG-13 in wide release. Also, the horror film Midsummer from writer-director Ari Aster, Florence Pugh, Will Poulter, and Jack Rayner star in the horror film. Claudia? I really like this film. It, it falls into this kind of folk horror, um, this kind of... Uh, like the Wicker Man kind of yes, thing? Yes, it is very much like that. Yeah, it has, a lot of people have made those comparisons. It has this spooky but kind of queasy, unsettling quality to it. Um, Ari Aster, who, of course, did Hereditary, is a very talented filmmaker, I think. And he's pretty ingenious in terms of plot lines. This is just sinister. It's a tiny bit uneven, but it's very watchable. And the premise of it is just, you know... The this, the 
a young woman who we, we completely are on her side. Um, she's had this terrible tragedy happen to her, played by Florence Pugh, and she's great. Every little detail of her face. Um, she's had a terrible family tragedy, and she has this kind of rotten boyfriend. And he hap- sort of he's going to Sweden with his bros, and he kind of very haphazardly invites her along, more out of guilt than anything else. And she says yes. He's expecting her to say no, and invites her to go to, on this trip to Sweden. And so they go to this strange commune with these kind of seemingly flower in their hair hippie type people, oh. but they're not. Yeah. They are anything but <laughs> gentle people. Um, it, and it's it it unravels in a in a pretty creepy way. I mm. mean, it's not. I didn't find it to be like one of those horror films where you're on the edge of your seat so much as you're just deeply unnerved. Mm. You know, it's funny reading the description of it. It sounded kind of absurd, you yes. know, reading it. <laughs> and then I've seen the reviews. I mean, extraordinary ninety some percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Right. You you must have taken this sort of absurd premise and really made everybody buy into it. He in does, the way he and you it. you almost believe this place exists. I mean, yeah. I don't know what it is, how he creates it in such a way that you believe that this weird cult and this place exists. There's nothing about it that feels all that fantasy like. Yeah, this event that only happens every every ninety years. You know, this thing that they're going to be doing in this uh, this this cultural thing, and um, so Arias asked, I, I I appreciate more than I like. Hereditary, I appreciate more than I actually like. Wicker Man, yes, but the 1973 Wicker Man, the, not that nutty yeah, thing. Yeah, the Schaefer, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Who, wrote, who wrote Frenzy and Sleuth, by the way, Anthony Schaefer. Mm. Edward Woodard in that film. So this movie, um, there's a moment in this movie where something happens. And, uh, and I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go take this from a, a generally speaking racial point of view. I'm sitting here watching this movie and I'm thinking to myself, no black people stay in this movie after that happens. <laughs> No, 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 none that I know anyway. Not from St. Louis. I think you're talking about one of the parts for me. was like, really? Yes. Stay down that yes. People of color do try to take off yeah, yeah. afterwards. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, and then one guy sticks around. But... All my homies are like, you know what, guys? This is a wonderful thing. I'm out of here. And the movie's over. Uh, but everybody sticks around and the rest of the movie happens. So, you know, but that's where I live in that movie. All I know is I would have never seen the end of no, it. No, no, I agree with you. But. And what I like is that this is bright and sunshine. It's a bright, sunshiny tale of dread. And the contrast of this bucolic place with its kind of summer camp feel with this absolutely horrible, sinister stuff that's going. I love that yeah. sort of contradiction. Yeah. And Astor's previous film was uh, Hereditary, Hereditary yeah. which, which got... Great reviews, too. I like this one better, actually. Um, Again, that's one that I appreciate more than I actually like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. We're talking about Midsummer, which actually opened earlier this week, and we're revisiting it. Uh, so you can decide whether you want to see it this weekend. Ari Aster, the writer-director, it's rated R in wide release. The thriller Skin in the Game is directed by Adisa uh I just have Adisa. Just, yeah. That's it. Yes, that's yeah. it. Is, okay. Yeah. Like Madonna. Yeah. Yes. Uh, or, or, or Zendaya. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Skin in the Game's written by Stephen Palmer Peterson. Claudia? Well, this is a, I don't know. This is this feels a bit amateurish yeah. overall. <laughs> um, only one actor, and that's Erica Ash, does a good job yeah. acting. The lead. Uh, the lead, the lead yeah. yes. And she's a former sex worker. It's all very convenient because this young girl, 
um, young blonde teenage girls sort of snatched off the streets to become, a, a, you know, and kidnapped and, and not to in any way diminish the fact that, you know, uh, human trafficking is a terrible, terrible thing and it is on the rise. But it's anyway, she's snatched away. And the only person who can kind of help track her down happens to be the mom's former best friend of the godmother who had been a sex worker. And that's this this actress. Um, so, it's you know, right there, it's, it's contrived already. Mm. And there's a couple lines about Studio City and Ventura Boulevards that are subbing in for the inner city that are really funny and yeah. laughable. But um, yes, it condemns, of course, this exploitation, but it also kind of is sensationalistic. No. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. I yeah. mean, come on. Man. You can't, look, these movies, these guys, they try to get away with this thing and they put up these you know, human sex trafficking is this thing. And then they they show us all these really salacious scenes Very of these salacious. young women yes. in these little bitty outfits yes. and, and, and all of this sort of horrible things. Horrible things hairy men um, um, and yeah. these, these little glamorous women. And yeah, it's, yeah. it's just, so it's Grindhouse meets PSA. Yeah. It would, with a bunch of bad dialogue shoved into these actresses' mouths dialogue. where everybody has to, everybody gets to tell the little terrible story or whatever. I'm like, this is just, no. No. Skin in the Game is the film. Uh, it stars Erica Ash. It's at the AMC City Walk in Universal City and uh, select a video on demand platforms. Coming up a little bit later, it's your chance to ask questions of our critics. Uh, we haven't done this in a very long time. Just opened up our phone lines uh, or our uh, Film Week page for you to ask questions. If you're with us for the live Friday broadcast of Film Week, you'll have a chance to call in uh, and ask our critics questions about their work or about film generally. 866-893-KPECC 866-893-5722 for the live Friday Film Week. Next, we talk about the re-release of the 1982 favorite, The Return of Martin Guerre, uh, the film directed by uh, Daniel Vignet, uh, the film unrated Gérard Depardieu, stars in the film with uh, Natalie Bai. Tim... Uh, Take us back to 82 in this film, which which was extremely popular. Very popular. Mm. Saw it in 1982. It, it was beautiful then. This restoration is extraordinary. Just absolutely pristine in every possible way. I, I, I just thoroughly love just looking at this it's film. It's so beautiful. Uh, yeah. A reminder, even if you know the story, it's a reminder of, 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 of just what a wonderful story. I'm on the edge of my seat. I've seen, I've seen this movie a dozen times, surely. I'm, I'm nevertheless on the edge of my seat. Gerard Depardieu. I had forgotten how ridiculously handsome he was. He really <laughs> was. I'd forgotten, too. Just, I mean, yeah. that jaw. That, and all, and that, and, Such and, a great actor. Just, so the, the story, uh, we, we, we meet uh, this couple when they're getting married, medieval, medieval France. Uh, they get married. Uh, there, there's some issues uh, early in, 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 in their married life. He goes away and is gone for 10 years. To fight in the Hundred yeah, Years' War. So they yeah. say. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, the, and then a man returns. The man who returns is, is uh, Gerard Depardieu. And the question is, is he in fact... Martin Gare. And, uh, <laughs> and, and it's just a wonderful thing, the wonderful travel. The costumes are extraordinary, particularly in this uh, restoration, because it's also bright and vibrant. And I, Gerard Depardieu's face, he can do things with his face that the great comedic, particularly French actors can do. There's a scene near the end of this movie uh, where he has to look at Natalie Bai and he has to communicate what he needs to communicate just with his face. He goes through this little litany of expressions that just break you in half. It's just extraordinary. It's just so wonderful. And Natalie Bai, too. I mean, she communicates so much. She's, I think, in a way, it's almost her movie, too, because mm. it's she's the one that, you know, is 
whoever this guy is, whether he's the original, her husband, or he's a much he's a wonderful person to her. Mm. The other one was not a great husband or father or, or human. So you know, you're what she is she falling in love with this new person? Is he the original person? All of that. It's so superbly acted, and it's kind of about acting because mm. he's acting the role of Martin Gare too. So I love that it kind of goes from being this this period folk tale, and then it's a mystery, then it's a courtroom drama, mm. you know, a medieval courtroom drama. Uh, and it just evokes that era and that countryside so well. I, I It was so much fun seeing it again. Yeah, look, it, it, I haven't look, seen it since 1982. It's a 30-year-old movie based on a 40-year-old book. So, you know, it's, it ends very darkly, and it, but it, but it, somehow it's still beautiful. Oh, absolutely. I, I hate to say it's a 37. 37, oh. yes. I'm sorry. <laughs> we saw it when we were just How born, much right? Has <laughs> the Return of Montague. It's a toddler movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's unrated. Lemley's Royal Theater in West L.A. Very rare for a documentary to get a re-release, but Paris is Burning had such a wonderful reception back in 19, was it 90 or 92 that, that it came out? 1990. Yeah. Uh, and it was the New York City uh, drag scene uh, and ballrooms and all. Paris is Burning. Uh, I just remember back at that time when our critics reviewed it, how much they loved this movie. It's out again, Claudia. And we will love it again. Um, it, it introduced us to this cast of characters that had this, you know, this safe space coming together. It feels like it was the precursor to where we are now. It was so kind of ahead of its time. Mm. And, you know, now you have RuPaul's Drag Race and all that, but this kind of... It's so mainstream. Yeah, so mainstream, but this was not, yeah. And, and you know, about the drag balls of Harlem, it's both kind of this celebration and it's also this commentary. And I love that the focus was on Black and Latino, mm. uh, gay and, and transgender um, folks. I just... I, I the, the way she looks at the subculture and just lets them tell their own stories, I think is just so wonderful and so powerful and still holds up so well. Yeah, Jenny Livingston, uh, the director of this yes. film, uh, who's gone on to make uh, other films, including a series called Pose, which uh, sort of takes from this. Of course, Madonna's record, um, Vogue. Uh, uh, Vogue, came out and was deeply influenced by all of this. Uh, and when you look at some of those women in that video from back in the day, uh, keep in mind that not all of them are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're talking about Paris is Burning, the documentary from 1990 by Jenny Livingston, which was her directorial debut, yes. by the way. What a and way to she, debut. And she gained such intimate access to these dance clubs, and, and people really spoke to her, you know, so openly. And uh, I just, I was really taken by it. I hadn't seen it way back when it first came out, so it it's was rated, revelatory. It's rated R. You can see it at the New Art Theater in West L.A. We have a couple more films to talk about when we come back, but... I want to take your calls. You can ask our critics. Let Tim and Claudia uh, answer any question you have about state of film today. It can be about the kind of work that they do. I have my own questions for them. I'll intersperse as well. If you're listening to Live Friday Film Week, you can call us at 866-893-KPECC. You can also comment on our Film Week page at KPECC. We have another film to review, Cold Blood, uh, which is a French mystery thriller, uh, which stars uh, Jean Reno and Sarah Ling. Tim, what do you think of Cold Blood? That's funny. It's not much of a mystery and it's not particularly thrilling. (laughs) No. Uh, This movie, Jean Reno plays uh, a hitman, surprise, surprise, um, uh, who has sequestered himself out in the, uh, the deep north. Right, it's supposed uh, to be Washington State. It's at the Carpathian Mountains yeah. in the Ukraine. You're way out there, it's, you're nothing, nothing, nothing. A young woman on a on a on a, uh, a snow. What do you call those mobile. things? A mobile. Uh, has an accident, not terribly far from him. 
Uh, he has to decide whether he's going to help her because he's sequestered himself for a reason. Now, what's going on here is so insanely obvious that I, the word mystery really does not apply. We, we know figure it, it out in five seconds. In five yeah. seconds, we know exactly why yeah. she's there. And then this whole story is, is explained to us, and I mean explained to us, by this, these cops, this old cop, exactly what's going on. They tell us who everybody is, what they did, what it, because you know what? We don't have any money to actually shoot these things. <laughs> so we're just going to have these guys sit in this really fancy police department and explain what's going on. And every now and again, we cut back out to the cabin. Yes, and then there's all these people that are supposed to be very American from New York, and they all have these vague <laughs> European accents. It's like, that's not a New York accent. <laughs> that's one of the problems. The notion of an American accent. Here's the thing, folks. There's no such thing as an American accent. There are American accents. It depends on where you're from. Well, yeah. and, and at one point, somebody goes, do you have that in New York? And the other person goes, what? He goes, Netflix. It's like, and he goes, believe me, New York homicide, you don't need Netflix. No, I mean, the, the it's dialogue just, is oh, so, so bad. terrible, so yeah. terrible. Uh, oh. So, you know, anyway, what are you, you, you going to do? Oh, my. Cold Blood is the film uh, written and directric, uh, directed by Frédéric Petitjean. It's unrated at Lemley's Monica Film Center in Santa Monica. Anime Expo is back at the L.A. Convention Center through Sunday, so who better than KPCC Film Week critic Charles Solomon to preview what's going on at the Convention Center. Charles, thanks for being with us. What are some of the highlights uh, you want to steer us toward? Hi, Larry. I'm down here on the Convention Center floor. There are thousands of people here with me. Uh, A lot of people are excited about a new film, Promare. That's from the people who did Gurren Lagann. It's got an amazing design sense, a fantastically flamboyant panel, and a plot that rambles along like a skateboarder on Lombard Street. Uh, there's also uh, Otomo, the Katsuya uh, Otomo, the creator of Akira, announced his new project yesterday that includes a new science fiction film and another animated version of Akira. And then at uh, 4.30 on Saturday... I'll be doing a Q&A with uh, Yuichiro Saito, the producer of um, Mirai of the Future and the other films of Mamoru Hosoda. Uh, All right. Hmm? All right. Sound, that sounds, it sounds great. You were going to say something else. I'm sorry. Yeah, I was going to say what makes this event so much fun is that it's the most inclusive thing you will find. It doesn't matter your age, your gender, your weight, your identity. Anything. If you love My Hero Academia and Naruto and Sailor Moon, come on now because you've got friends here, and you know you'll just be part of a tribe. So, is is this at all reminiscent of Comic Con, the huge San Diego event? Uh, it's more like what Comic Con used to be and should still be. It's by and for the fans. It's not about the big commercial studio releases and publicity and so forth. This is the chance to put on your costume, uh, you know, look for a disc you don't have or a manga you've been searching for, and just talk to people who love the same things you do. All right, Charles, thanks so much. He's with us live from Anime Expo uh, at the L.A. Convention Center through this Sunday. KPCC critic Charles Solomon joining us. Claudia Puig, Tim Cogshell, our Film Week critics. And again, if you're listening live Friday, we're at 866 893 KPCC, and by the way, Anime Expo, uh, you can get more information by visiting our Film Week page. We've got a link to the info on that at kpcc.org. 
You're listening to Film Week on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle with this week's critics, Tim Cockshell and Claudia Puig. And it's time to ask the critics, chance for you to call in if you're listening to the Friday Live Show, 866-893-KPCC. And if you're listening to the Saturday noon broadcast, you can put your question on our Film Week page, and I'll make sure it gets asked on a future program. That's at kpcc.org. Cheryl in Hawthorne, your question for our critics. Cheryl, are you there? Yes, I am. Yeah, go right ahead. Your question for our critics. Yes. Um, I, since you obviously get to see these films before they're released to the public, where do you screen them? Do you get to screen them in a, a large th- screen theater or on small screens or what? Claudia? Um, generally, we do screen them on uh, in theaters. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they're big studio releases, always in theaters. Mm-hmm. Um, if they're smaller independent films, you know, uh, more and more we're starting to see them on links, um, if, especially if there's something that uh, is going to be on Netflix because it's sort of, you know, more appropriate to be seeing it the way other people are going to be seeing it mm-hmm. as well. But, yeah, we see them at sometimes at the studio screening rooms, sometimes at theaters where they hold early screenings. Um, those are the main two. Pl- and sometimes at private screening rooms. Yeah, sometimes private yeah. screening sometimes rooms. Sometimes one of the problems with those links that you're describing is they have a watermark to make yes. sure, you know, to show that it, this is this is not to be pirated, of course. Um, and it can be very distracting when you're trying to watch the film and there's some sort of a watermark that takes yes. up part of the picture. Yes, it really and it has your name me. on it. Yeah, and it's your, it yeah. has your name and it Across has someone's face. Some, yeah. some uh, ID <laughs> number that yes. goes with your name and if you're reading subtitles all the more it's even yeah, yeah it's very a, distracting. a lot of stuff can be happening sometimes and every now and again so a film that we talked about today the chambermaid a, a small intimate film yet i would still recommend seeing that film in a theater yes uh because it is such a beautifully composed film not a lot of big action no 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 car chases or shootouts but so beautifully composed in, in the way that roma was yes uh definitely that needed to be seen on a big scale big uh, big would screen. be an yeah. extraordinary film. and of course return of martin Gare with its yeah. restoration should yeah. be seen on a big screen i mean I ideally, we would see everything on a big screen. I still feel that most, you know, 99.9% of things need to be seen on a big screen. Mm. Guzzle in Pasadena said, how do you pick which films you're going to review? He said, I'm from India. I don't often hear about Southeast Asian films on the program. Is that because uh, they're not released locally? I want to know about that selection process. Well, it does begin with films being made available for us to review in time for the show. So you're not going to review something that's only shown in another country. Exactly, exactly. A film needs to be made available. Um, We we are having discussions about films that that are – well, films need to be theatrically released. We do have a conversation now about films that are day and date, theatrically released and streaming. Streaming on a platform on the same day. Uh, Occasionally, we will run into a film that has already been on a streaming service but does get a uh, a theatrical release. And and I I, I feel like we just just, uh, see them all. The world is kind of changing, I think, but there are some South Asian films uh, and Indian films that are released. But, um, you know, if 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 it screens in one theater, we pretty much will see it. Yeah. All right. Again, uh, if you're listening to our Friday live broadcast of Film Week, you can call in with your question for our critics. You can ask them about how they do their work, their views on the evolution of film. Pretty much wide open, the topic you choose, 866-893-KPCC, 866-893-5722. You can also ask a question on the Film Week page, and even on Saturday you can do that, and I'll ask it on a future segment of the program. Pippi uh, says... Uh, Tim, 
on January 17th, 2014, oh <laughs> on the segment Actors Under 40 to Watch. <laughs> you know where this is going, Tim. You dismissed Benedict Cumberbatch as nothing more than a pretty face. Yeah. Given his success in The Imitation Game, The Hollow Crown, Hamlet, and Sherlock, among others, has your opinion changed? Well, the very handsome young man became a better, ac- a better actor. What can, what can I say about that? Uh, and he is a pretty face. He still is. But yeah, no, Benedict has become an extraordinary actor, much better. Um, he was not good in August Osage County. Uh, he did not execute that southern accent properly. Yes, so that's he, true. he 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 is fallible. But I appreciate Benedict uh, quite a lot, and, and and that is really weird that you remember that. By the way, I, I'm impressed you remember from five and a half years yeah. ago yeah. what you said about Benedict Cumberbatch. You're listening to Film Week on eighty nine point three KPECC. Larry Mantle with Claudia Puig, Tim Cogshell, and a reminder to join us for our next Film Week screening of Boogie Nights. On the screen of the Theater at Ace Hotel, downtown Los Angeles, Saturday night, July 27th. Tickets at kpcc.org slash in person. We'll take more of your calls in a minute. We'll talk with listeners momentarily, get their questions for the critics. Tim Cogshell and Claudia Puig with us on Film Week. But I have a question for the two of you. Um, Many times we'll get approached by um, publicity companies for for films and they want to know if I want to interview someone involved with it. And so I'll typically watch, see if I connect with the film personally to decide if I do want to do the interview. Because if if I don't like it, you know, it doesn't make sense to do it. I feel like I can tell within about 15, 20 minutes of a movie whether I like it, whether I think it's a quality film. Now, some might feel that's very unfair because there are slow-starting films that later really deliver. Tim, my question for you is, at what point typically do you think you can tell what you think of a film? And, and just because I decide that I can tell doesn't mean that I won't continue to watch it yeah, anyway. with an open mm-hmm. mind. With an, with an open mind. But I'm, a, I'm, I'm about a 10-minute guy. Okay. I'm about uh, a 20-minute person. Yeah. But my theory is things can start good and go down. Mm-hmm. They rarely start bad and get better. Yeah. Amen. You're, that is so true. I'm trying to think of a film that I just really disliked 15 minutes in that by the end, wow, that delivered. Yes. And, yeah. Doesn't happen. Yeah. As, as, yeah. As, as opposed to, you know, ambivalent about 15 yes. or 10 minutes. Yeah. In, yes. Which is a different sort but of But if you hate it different. pretty much in the yeah. beginning, you're going to, yeah. yeah. If you feel like this is just improbable, <laughs> yeah. the, it, the script doesn't make, no one would really say this. Yeah. Um, it's it pretty clear. Yeah, 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 it doesn't. Again, if you're listening on our Friday Film Week, it's live, a chance for you to call and ask our critics your question at 866-893-KPCC. You can also post your question on our Film Week page uh, either Friday or Saturday at kpcc.org. Ralph asks, I'm wondering if each of you could tell us about a film in which your view of it did a complete 180. For example, many critics initially hated Arthur Penn's Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, many others were ambivalent about Kubrick's uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, both films now considered classics. Claudia? I was thinking in the other direction. I remember being charmed by Forrest Gump and then afterwards thinking this was not a good movie. Um, I'm trying to think if I have one that I really didn't like and then thought differently about. Um, 
I'm not thinking of one. Well, I, eyes wide shut. I remember. Uh, I remember. I remember being really irritated by eyes wide shut for I a whole bunch of Yeah, <laughs> me too. I, 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 I will remain irritated. I, I, I rather enjoy. I rather enjoy. For one thing, I rather it's, it's, it's an extraordinary film to look at. Sidney Pollack's performance in that film is really is terrific. Really good. Pollack is to me a very underrated good actor. actor. Yes. Almost everything I saw him in, it's like because he's such a good director. Everybody focused on that. It's almost too. It's, if, it'd be better if there were two Sidney Pollacks. He could have been a full. <laughs> Full-time actor and full-time no, t- director. Tootsie, are you kidding me? He was He's fantastic yeah, in Tootsie. Yeah. Um, so, 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 so there are films like that. Sometimes it, it, it comes with an understanding that comes late of what that film was about. You, you have one of those, oh, my goodness, I completely missed what that movie was about. And once you understand what the movie is about, you reevaluate. Was that yes. your Eyes Wide Shut oh, experience? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah that, that, that movie was about. I thought it was just a movie about the, the upper echelon of society and the, and, and the, the, the you know, games that they play. Uh, no, that movie is about something else altogether. It's about identity. Uh, that movie is about Nicole Kidman's identity as filtered through the gaze of all of these men and the, and the ideas about who she was supposed to be. And that made me think of Well, now I got to re-look at it yeah. after that analysis. Yes. <laughs> that, 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 yeah, that's I guess I do too, but I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of Lars von Trier films, you know. I, have, I was just going to say Lars uh, von you know, Trier. Yeah. yeah. I got to come at Lars two or three I, times. Yeah, yeah. Because there are some that I really like, but there are some that I, like Antichrist, that I absolutely despise. Yeah. And I almost want to see the ones that I despise again just to kind of or Nymphomaniac a little bit although there was I, I love the Nymphomaniac there was one part I, it was in two parts I think the first yeah. part I liked better than the second but yeah I kind of feel like I want to go back those are the ones that have so many layers and, and also um, Breaking the Waves I uh, love Breaking the Waves yeah. Synecdoche, New York I want to go back and oh, I mean Charlie Kaufman, Charlie Kaufman I, yeah, yeah. There's some no, people, I actually like that first time out but I'm a not. big Charlie Kaufman me too, yeah, me too. I'm a huge yeah. fan Yeah, Joey and Fullerton your question for our critics <laughs> Sure. Yeah. Hi. Um, my question is, how do you keep track of all your content and your ideas that you're going to write after you see the movie while you're watching the movie and so that you don't disturb others, that you take notes? How Do you put them on your phone? How do you keep track? Because then you write a column. Yeah, it's it's such a good question. Or are you training memory to to you, you sort of tag things mentally to do it? Claudia, how do you? I've think? tried different ways. Um, I I'm, I'm an inveterate note taker. Goes back to college. I'm one of those people that was always taking copious notes. When people talk to me on the phone, I would be taking notes. So I just always took notes for years and years and years quietly, not on my phone, not so it would disturb anybody, just writing, you know, the old-fashioned way with a notepad and a pen and, um, you know, with my fingers sort of at a point where I would know not to write on top of what I wrote before because it's dark. Like little dumb things that you learn to do. Almost like stenography. Yeah, almost like stenography. The problem is my writing can be so terrible that I have to decipher it afterwards. That's my problem. When I've taken notes at a screening, I can't read my notes afterwards. So I have to do it right away. The other thing I've tried to do is just sit and watch and let it wash over me and I still have not yet figured out I do both, and it just depends on the movie, and sometimes I might go back and see it again. I gave up on that all that long time ago. Our one-time film week colleague, Andy Klein, used to have this device to use. Oh, Joe Morgenstern has one of those, yeah, too. Yeah, and he yeah. would sit there and type these notes, and he would cover the, the, the little glowing screen, and, and, and apparently he's just a really good typist, because I, I, I would sit next to Andy, and he'd be sitting there typing these notes as he watched like the movie. like a court reporter yeah, watching yeah. the movie. He was basically yeah. white writing his review as he wrote the movie. I don't do anything anymore. I just watch the movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dustin and Burbank wonders about your turnaround time after you see a a movie how quickly do you write the full review well when i was working for box office magazine for 17 years very often we had to turn in the review the very next morning sometimes we would 
be writing to a deadline that evening. Uh, so I could, I could, I could turn a re- re- overnight unequivocally. I could turn a review around. Now we had really great editors. Wade Major was one of my editors. Yeah. Thank God for Wade. <laughs> um, um, uh, um, and uh, so yeah, very often uh, I would turn a review. But you know what? Not a good idea. Not the best. I always like having a little bit of time. But yeah, with, when I was at USA Today for eighteen years, it's funny we're both same yeah. time. Um, the same thing. I mean, sometimes you know they they would wait until the very last. But generally, the it wouldn't be the night before. It might be two nights before. Um, but it might be Wednesday night night. It was due on Thursday. So yes, it would be the night before. Um, and sometimes they show it to you months in advance. And then I would just, you know, take, I'd have time to sort of think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I like having time to think about it. I was going to say, does that help to let a film, some movies kind of percolate before you write Some it. movies you really need to percolate. So, and, and sometimes you don't have that luxury. I rewrote that, yeah. my review of Unforgiven four times. Uh, because I had, saw it in such a long lead screening. Wow! Uh, because I, and it was all about emphasis, about what I wanted the review to to emphasize. You know, because like, there are a lot of things you can yeah, choose in that yeah, film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's a great was, film. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, what do you think of Rotten Tomatoes? David in the Fairfax district. Oh, I have strong wonders. feelings. <laughs> I think it's very reductive. It's very binary. The whole fresh rotten thing. Um, I I understand why people you turn to it as a tool, but I think. Here's why it's so problematic. You could have a movie that everybody thinks is slightly better, like a little more good than bad. So if everybody thinks a movie is a little more good than bad, so everybody gives it what would be a fresh review, that could come out to like 98%. But it could really just be sort of like, that's eh, okay. Yeah. So that it's very misleading. Or, or, or vice versa. It also yeah, undermines the, around, the notion of, of reading thoughtful reviews, of actually reading the thoughtful review. A Siskel and Eber did the thumbs up, thumbs down thing, but they did it after they talked about yes. the movie. Yeah, that's a very that's a very good point. Michael in Irvine is being a film critic a full time forty hour a week job. Real quickly, Tim, not anymore. It can be depends on who you work for. Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the the flip side when you two or any of our critics are coming on Film Week in a week, how many hours with all these films? Well, for watching eight to ten films, that's yeah. two hours of film, mm-hmm. and then if you count the you know, all the notes, all the, all notes, the prep the you thinking, do, yeah, 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 you may look up about the director, previous stuff. Yeah, it's more than full time. Yes, weeks. yes, it is. All right, <laughs> thanks so much, Tim, Claudia. Great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us for another Film Week on KPCC. Have a wonderful weekend.